Chapter Twenty of *The Tiger of Mysore* by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. *The Tiger of Mysore* by G. A. Henty. Chapter Twenty: The Escape. Soon after eight o'clock, customers began to drop in, and throughout the day a brisk trade was carried on. Surajah was sent for in the course of the morning by the governor, who bought several silver bracelets, brooches, and earrings for his wife. Most of the other officers came in during the day and made similar purchases, and many trinkets were also sold to the soldiers, who considered them a good investment for their money. Indeed, small, no small portion of the earnings of the natives of India are spent upon silver ornaments for their women, as they can at any time be converted into cash. The commoner cloths, knives, beads, and trinkets were almost all disposed of by the end of the day, for as no traders had come up for six months, and as a long time might elapse before others did so, the garrison were glad to lay in a store of useful articles for themselves and families, especially as the prices of all the goods were at least as low as they could have been bought in town. "'We shan't leave much behind us,' Dick said, as he looked around over the last customers had left, and they had sat down to their evening meal. "'Almost all the silver work and the better class of goods have gone, and I should say three-quarters of the rest. I dare say we shall get rid of the remainder to-morrow. I don't suppose many of the soldiers st stationed down by the gate have come up yet, but when they hear that we sell cheaply, some of them will be here to-morrow. We have made no money by the transaction, but at any rate we shall have got back the outlay. Of course I should not have cared if we got nothing back still. It's satisfactory to have cleared oneself. I wonder how Ibrahim is getting on down in the wood. He won't be expecting us to-day, Storijah replied but I have no doubt he will begin to feel anxious by to-morrow night. I wish we could have seen some way of getting the horses down. It will be awkward to doing without them. Yes, I hope we shall get a good start. Of course, we must put on our peasants' dresses again. I am glad enough to be rid of that rope, though I have had to put it on two or three additional things to fill me out to the same size as before. Still, I don't feel so bound in as I did, though it is horribly hot. I am sure I shall be glad to get rid of all this stuffing, Surajah said. I felt ready to faint to-day when the room was full. Well, we have only one more day of it, Dick said. I do hope father will be able to get out by ten o'clock. Then, before eleven, we shall be at the edge of the rock. So we are two hours in getting down and walking round to join Ibrahim. That will take us till one, and we shall have a good five hours before father's escape will be discovered. They will know that he can't have gone down the road, and it will take them fully two hours to search the fort, and all over the rock. It will be eight o'clock before they set out in pursuit, and by that time we ought to be well on the road between Senapatam and Anakul. If we can manage to buy horses at Senapatam, of course we will do so. We shall be there by five o'clock, and ought to be able to get them in a couple of hours. Once on horseback we are safe. I don't think they'll pursue us very far, perhaps not even so far as Senapatam for the governor will see that he had better not make any fuss about a white captive having escaped, when it was not known that he had one there at all. I think it more likely that when he finds father has got fairly away, he will take no steps at all. They have no cavalry here, and he will know well enough that there will be no chance of our being tracked and overtaken by footmen, if we had but a couple of hours' start. I think that is so, Dick. He has done his duty in keeping your father a prisoner, but I don't think he will be at heart at all sorry that he has made his escape. I think Surajah will write a letter to him and leave it here to be found after we have got away, 
thanking him in father's name for the kindness that he has always shown him, saying who I am, why I came here, and asking his pardon for the deception that I have been obliged to play upon him. He is a good old fellow, and I should think it would please him. I should think it would, Surajah agreed. I'll do up my brace of pistols in a packet and put them with the note, Dick went on, and will say in it that I hope he will accept them as a token of our esteem and gratitude. They are well-finished English pistols, and I have no doubt he will prize them. I will mention, too, that we shall have made our escape at eleven o'clock, and therefore by the time he receives my letter we shall be far beyond the reach of pursuit. I dare say that will decide him upon letting the matter pass quietly, and he will see himself that, by making no fuss over it, no one outside the fortress will ever know that a prisoner has escaped. The next day passed comparatively quietly. A good many soldiers and women came up from below, and before sunset their goods were completely cleared out. The governor came over in the afternoon and had a talk with them. They expressed their satisfaction at the result of their trading, and said that they should be off before sunrise. "'I hope you will come again,' he said, "'but not for another six months, for assuredly you will take away with you pretty nearly every rupee in the fortress. My wife and the other ladies are well content with their purchases, and agree that they would not have got them cheaper at Serengapatam or Bangalore.' We try to buy cheaply and sell cheaply, Surajan said modestly. In that way we turn over our money quickly, but it is seldom indeed that we find so good a market as we have done here. When we left Bangalore we thought it might be a month before we should have to go back there to replenish our packs from our magazine, but we shall only have been away five or six days. I am glad that you are content, for you are honest traders and not like some of the rascals that have come up to the forts I have commanded, and fleeced the soldiers right and left. Although not giving to blushing, Dick felt he coloured under his dye at the praise, for although they had certainly sold cheaply, he doubted whether the term honest could be faintly applied to the whole transaction. As ten o'clock approached, the two friends sat with open door, listening intently for every sound. Conversation was still going on in the houses, and occasionally they could make out a dark figure crossing the yard. It was not yet ten when a light footfall was heard, and a moment later Captain Holland appeared at the door. "'It's all right so far,' he said. "'But wait five minutes to give me time to get the ladder fixed. "'You had better come one by one and stroll quietly across the yard. "'It's too dark for anyone to recognize you unless they run right against you, "'and even if they do so they will not think it strange you should be out, "'after having been cooped up all day.' "'In another moment he was gone. "'They had each during the day gone out for a time, "'and had walked round through the narrow lane behind the governor's house, to see that there were no obstructions that they might fall over in the dark. They agreed, on comparing notes, that Captain Holland had chosen the best possible place for scaling the wall, for the lane was evidently quite unused, and the house, which was higher than the wall, would completely screen them from observation. In five minutes Dick followed his father, leaving Surajah to come on in a minute or two. They had secured about them the gold and silver they had received for their purchases, but they left behind a large heap of copper coins, on the top of which Dick had placed his letter to the governor, and the parcel containing the brace of pistols. He met no one on his way to the rendezvous, but almost ran against his father in the dark. "'Steady, Dick, or you'll run me down,' Captain Holland said. "'I've got the ladder fixed, so you had better go up at once. Take these three spears with you. I'll bring the long ladder.' "'We shan't want the spears, father. We have a brace of double-barreled pistols and two brace of single-barrels.' "'Never mind that, Dick. You will see that they will come in useful.' Dick took the spears and mounted the ladder without further question. His father then came up and placed the long rope, 
which with the pieces of wood was a bulky bundle on the wall, and then descended again. It was another five minutes before Surajah came up. I was stopped on the way, he said, and had to talk with one of the officers. He and the captain were soon by Dick's side. The ladder was then pulled up and lowered on the other side of the wall. They were soon standing at its foot. "'Shall I jerk the ladder down, father?' "'I think not, Dick. It would only make a clatter, and it is no matter to us whether they find it in the morning or not. You had better follow me. I know every foot of the ground, and there are some nasty places, I can tell you.' They had to make several detours to avoid ravines running deep into the plateau, and for a time Captain Holland walked very cautiously. When he had passed these he stepped out briskly, and in less than an hour from starting they were near the edge of the precipice. Their eyes had by this time become accustomed to the darkness. "'We are just there now,' Captain Holland said. "'But we must go very cautiously, for the rock falls sheer away without warning. Ah, ah, there is the edge, a few yards ahead of me. Now, do you stay where you are, while I feel about for that spearhead I put in to mark the place. It had about three feet of the staff on it. If it were not for that, there would be small chance of finding it. I know it's somewhere close here. In a few minutes he returned to them. I have found it, he said. Keep close behind me. After walking for fifty yards, he stopped. Here it is, lads. Now, give me those spears, Dick. He thrust them firmly into the ground a few inches apart. "'Throw your weight on them, too,' he said. "'That's right. Now they will stand many times the strain we shall put on them. "'I have chosen this place, Dick, for two reasons. "'In the first place, because it's the most perpendicular, "'and in the second, because the soil and grass project slightly over the edge of the rock. "'There's a cushion in that bundle and four spearheads. "'I'll peg it down close to the edge, and the rope will run easily over it. "'Now, Surajah, we had better let you down first. "'You'll be tied quite securely.' and there will be no risk whatever, as you know, of the rope giving way. I should advise you to keep your eyes shut till you get to the bottom, for the rope will certainly twist round and round, but keep your arms well in front of you, and whenever you feel the rock, open your eyes and send yourself off with your arms and legs. I don't think you will touch, for at this point it seems to me as I look down that the rock projects farther out than anywhere else on the face of the precipice and that a stone dropped straight down would fall some fourteen or fifteen feet from its foot. Would you like me to bandage your eyes? No, thank you. I will keep my eyes closed. That is the best thing you can do, Captain Holland said, though it's so dark that you would not be able to see if you did. When you get to the bottom, untie the rope, pull it gently down, and call out to me whether the lowest piece of slick touches the ground. If it does not, I'll pull it up again and fasten on some more. I've got a dozen spare ones with me. Captain Holland then told Surajah and Dick to take off their upper garments. These he wound round and round the lower four feet of the rope, increasing its diameter to over two inches. There, he said, as he fastened this round Surajah's body under the arms, it won't hurt you now. That silk rope would have cut in an inch deep before you got to the bottom, if it had not been covered. Then he took off his own garment, made it up into a roll, lashed one end of the rope in the center of Surajah's back, passed it between his legs, and fastened it to the knot at his chest. There, he said, that will prevent any possibility of the thing slipping up over your shoulders, and will take a lot of the strain off your chest. Then he lay down and crawled toward the edge, pegged the cushion down, and then, turning to Surajah, said, All is ready now. Surajah had felt rather ashamed that all these precautions should be taken for him, while the others would have to rely solely upon their hands and feet, 
and sternly repressing any sign of nervousness, he stepped forward to the side of Captain Holland. "'That's right,' the captain said approvingly. "'Now lie down by my side, and work yourself backwards. Go over on one side of the cushion, for you might otherwise displace it. I will hold your wrists and let you over. Dick will hold the rope. I'll put it fairly on the cushion. Then I shall take it and stand close to the edge, and pay it out gradually as you go down. If you should find any projecting piece of rock, call out, Stop! I'll hold on at once. We can then talk over how we can best avoid the difficulty. When you are down, and I tell you Dick is coming, take hold of one of the steps, and hold the ladder as firmly as you can, so as to prevent it from swaying about. Now, are you ready? Quite ready, Surajah said in a firm voice. Dick, who was standing five or six yards back, tightened the rope. Gradually he saw Surajah's figure disappear over the edge. "'Slack out a little bit,' his father said. "'That's right. I've got it over the cushion. Now hold it firmly until I am on my feet. That's right. Now pay it out gradually.' It seems an endless time to Dick before his father exclaimed, "'The strain is off. Thank God he has got down all right.' A minute later there was a slight pull on the rope, and the captain paid it out until he heard a call from below. "'Have you got to the lowest stick?' he asked, leaning over. "'Yes, it is just touching the ground.' Oh, not such a bad guess, the captain said as he turned to Dick. There are about twenty feet left. He now fastened the rope round the spears in the ground. I'll lower you down if you like, Dick. You are half as heavy again as that young native, but I have no doubt that I can manage it. Not at all, father. I'm not a bit nervous about it. If it was light, I should not feel so sure of myself, for I might turn giddy, but there's no fear of my doing so now. Well, lad, it's as well to be on the safe side, and I manufactured this yesterday. He put a loop composed of a rope some four feet long over Dick's shoulders and under his arms. To each end was attached a strong double hook, like two fingers. There, lad, now if you feel at all tired or shaky, all you have to do is hook this one on to one of the steps, do you see? One hook on each side of the cord. That way you can rest as long as you like and then go on again. You say you can go down a rope with your hands only. I should advise you to do that if you can and not use your legs unless you want to sit down on one of the long steps. For, as you know, if you use your feet, the rope will go in till they are almost level with your head, while if you use your arms only it will hang straight down. I know, father, and I don't suppose I shall have to rest at all, for these cross-sticks make it ten times as easy as having to grip the rope only. Dick laid himself down as Surajah had done, and crawled backward until he was lying half over the edge. Then he seized the rope and began to descend, hand over hand. He counted the rungs as he went down, and halfway he sat down on one of the long pieces, hitched the hooks onto the one above, and rested his arms. After a short pause he continued until he reached the bottom. The captain, who was stooping with his hand on the rope, felt the vibration cease, and as he leaned over he heard Dick call out, "'I'm all right, father. Those bits of wood make easy work of it.' Then the captain at once began to descend and was soon standing beside his son and Surajah. "'Thank God that job is finished. How do you both feel?' "'My arms feel as if they had done some work, father. I have been four or five months without practice, or I should hardly have felt it.' "'And how are you, Surajah? I feel ashamed at having been let down like a baby, Captain Holland, and at being so nervous.' Oh, "'There's nothing to be ashamed of,' Captain Holland said. "'Rope-climbing is a thing that only comes with practice.' And as to nervousness, most landsmen are afraid to trust themselves to a rope at all. Did you open your eyes? Not once, Sahib. I kept my arms out, as you told me, but I did not touch anything. 
I could feel that I was spinning round and round, and was horribly frightened just at first. But I went down so smoothly and quietly that the feeling did not last long, for I knew that the rope was very strong, and as I did not touch anything, it seemed to me that there could be no fear of it being cut against the rock. The clothes were soon unwound from the rope and put on again. Captain Holland cut off all the slack of the rope and made it into a coil. The slope is all right as far as I could see from the top, but we may come across nasty bits again, and this will stand in useful if we do. They went down cautiously, but at a fair rate of speed, until without meeting with any serious difficulty, they arrived on the plain. Four miles brisk walking brought them to the grove where Ibrahim had been left, and they had scarce entered among the trees when he asked, "'Who is that that is coming?' "'It's us, Ibrahim. We have got my father.' Ibrahim gave an exclamation of joy, and a minute later they joined him. "'You were not asleep then, Ibrahim?' Dick asked. "'Oh, no, my lord. I have slept during the day and watched at night. But I did not sleep yesterday, for I was growing sorely anxious, and had begun to fear that harm had befallen you.' "'Well, let us be off at once. Of course we have had to leave the horses behind us, and I want to be at Senapatam by daybreak. We'll buy horses there.' They struck across the country to the southwest until they came on a road between Magri and Senapatam, and arrived within sight of the latter town just at daybreak. As they walked, Dick and Surajah had, with no small amount of pain, removed their beards and the patches of hair. "'You both ought to have shaved before you put those things on,' Captain Holland said, as they muttered exclamations of pain. You see, cobbler's wax, or whatever it is, sticks to what little down there is on your cheeks and chin, and I don't wonder that it hurts horribly pulling it off. If you had shaved first, you would not have felt any of it. "'I'll remember that, father, if I ever have to disguise myself again,' Dick said. "'I feel as if I were pulling the whole skin off my face.' The painful task was at last finished. "'I shall be glad to have a look at you in the morning,' Dick, his father said, "'so as to see what you are really like.' of which I have not the least idea at present. You must feel a deal more comfortable now that you have gotten rid of the rope. I am indeed. I am sure Surajah must be quite as much pleased at leaving his padding behind. They stopped half a mile from the town, which was a place of considerable size. Dick took from the saddlebag of the horse Ibrahim was leading the bottle of liquid with which he was in the habit of renewing his staining every few days, and darkened his father's face and hands. Then they took off their costumes as merchants, and put on their peasant's attire. Dick directed Ibrahim to make a detour so as to avoid the town, and come down on the road half a mile beyond it, and there wait until they rejoined them, for his father was to accompany Ibrahim. It was growing light as Dick and Surajah entered the town, and in half an hour the streets became alive with people. After some search they found a man who had several horses to sell, and after the proper amount of bargaining they purchased three fairly good animals. Another half-hour was occupied in procuring saddles and bridles, and after riding through quiet streets to avoid questioning, they left the town and soon rejoined their companions. "'Now, Surajah,' Dick said, "'we will be colonels again for a bit.' The saddle-bags were again opened, and in a few minutes they were transformed. "'Why, where on earth did you get those uniforms?' Captain Holland asked in surprise. "'Those sashes are the signs that their wearers are officers of the palace, for I have seen them more than once in Kishnagari.' and the badges are those of colonels. <laughs> There's nothing like impudence, Dick, but it seems to me it would have been safer if you had been contented with sub-officers' uniforms. Dick laughed. We are wearing them because we have a right to them, Dick laughed. We are both colonels in Tipu's armies, and officers of the palace. That is, we were so until a month ago, though I expect since then our names have been struck off their army list. 
I'll tell you about it as we ride. You'd better tell me afterwards, Dick. I have never ridden a horse in my life, except when they were taking me from the coast to Mysore, and I shall have enough to do to keep my seat and attend to my steering without trying to listen to you. They rode all day, passed through Anakul and Asur, and halted for the night in a grove two or three miles farther on. They had not been questioned as, at a walk, they went through the town. Captain Holland had ridden behind with Ibrahim, and the latter had stopped and laid in a stack of provisions at Anakul. "'Thank goodness that is over,' Captain Holland said as they dismounted. "'I feel as if I had been beaten all over with sticks, and am as hungry as a hunter.' "'Ibrahim will have some food ready in half an hour, father, and I shall be glad of some myself, though you know we all had some chupatties he bought. Ah, they were better than nothing, Dick, but a pancake or two does not go very far, with men who have been travelling since ten o'clock last night. Well, lad, I am glad that you have got rid of your beard, and that, except for that brown skin, I am able to have a look at you as you are. You'll be bigger than I am, Dick, bigger by a good bit, I should say.' and any father might be proud of you, much more so one who has been fetched out from a captivity from which he had given up all hope of escaping. As it is, lad, words can, can't tell you how grateful I feel to God for giving me such a son. My dear father, it's mother's doing. It's been her plan, ever since she heard that you were wrecked, that we should come out here to find you, and she has had me regularly trained for it. I had masters for fencing and gymnastics. We always talked Hindustani when we were together and she has encouraged me to fight with other boys, so that I should get strong and quick. That evening by the fire Dick told his father the whole story of his life since he had been in India. "'Well, my lad, you have done wonders,' his father said when he had finished, "'and if I had as much enterprise and go as you have, I should have been out of this place years ago. But in the first place I was very slow in picking up their lingo. You see, until within the last three or four years there have always been other Englishmen with me. Of course we talked together, and as most of them were able to speak a little of the lingo, there was no occasion for me to learn it. Then I was always from the first, when they saw that I was handy at all sorts of things, kept at odd jobs, and so got less chance of picking up the language than those who were employed in drilling, or who had nothing to do but talk to their guards. But most of all I did not try to escape, because I found that if I did so, it would certainly cost my companions their lives. That was the way that scoundrel Tippoo kept us from making attempts to get off. Well, soon after the last of the other captives was murdered, we moved away to Kishnagari, which was a very difficult place to escape from, and besides, very soon after we got there I heard of the war with our people, and hoped that they would take the place. It was, as you may suppose, a terrible disappointment to me when they failed in their attack on it. Still, I hoped that they would finally trash Tippoo, and that somehow I might get handed over to them. However, as you know, when peace was made, and Kisnagare had to be given over, the governor got orders to evacuate it, without waiting for the English to come up to take possession. Well, since I have been here at Savandrug, I have thought often of trying to get away. By the time I got there I had learned to speak the language fairly enough to make my way across the country, and I have been living in hopes that somehow or other I might get possession of a rope long enough to let myself down the rocks. But, as I told you, I have never so much as seen one up there twenty feet long. I did think of gradually buying enough cotton cloth to twist up and make a rope of, but, you see, when one has been years in captivity one loses a lot of one's energy. If I had been worse off I should have set about the thing in earnest, but, you see, I was not badly treated at all. I was always doing odd carpentering jobs for the colonel and officers, and armorers work at the guns. Any odd time I had over I did jobs for the soldiers and their wives. 
I got a good many little presents, enough to keep me in decent clothes and decent food, if you can call the food you have up there decent, and to provide me with tobacco, so that except when I was a prisoner, and for the thought of my wife and you, I had really nothing to grumble about, and was indeed better off than anyone in the fortress except the officers. So, you see, I just existed, always making up my mind that some day I should see a good chance of making my escape, but not really making any preparations toward cash and casting off my moorings. Now, Dick, it must be past twelve o'clock, and I am dog-tired. How far have we to ride tomorrow? Oh, it's uh, thirty-five miles from Osor to Kisnagari, which will be far enough for us to go tomorrow. And then another five-and-twenty will take us down to Tripatli. As the horses have gone about forty miles, it would be a long journey for them to go right through tomorrow. And I don't think I could do it, Dick, if they could. I expect I shall be stiffer tomorrow than I am now. Eager as I am to see your dear mother, I don't want to have to be lifted off my horse when I arrive there, almost speechless with fatigue. The next day they rode on to Kisnagari, passing a small frontier fort without question. They slept at the post-house there, Dick and Surajah having removed their scarves and emblems of rank as soon as they passed the frontier, in order to escape all inquiries. They started next morning at daybreak, and arrived within sight of Tripatli at ten o'clock. "'Now, father, I will gallop on,' Dick said. "'I must break the news to mother before you arrive.' "'Certainly,' Dick, his father, who had scarcely spoken since they started, replied, "'I have been feeling very anxious about it all the morning, for though, as you tell me, she has never lost faith in my being alive,' My return cannot be but a great shock to her. Dick rode on, and on arriving at the palace was met in the courtyard by the Rajah, who was on the point of going out on horseback. He dismounted at once. I am truly glad to see you back, Dick, for your mother has been in a sad state of anxiety about you. Eight days ago she started up from a nap she was taking in the middle of the day, and burst out crying, saying that she was certain you were in some terrible danger, though whether you were killed or not she could not say. Since then she has been in a bad state. She has scarcely closed an eye, and has spent her whole time in walking restlessly up and down. Oh, it was quite true that I was in great danger, uncle, and I am sorry indeed that she is in this state, for my coming home will be a shock to her, and she has an even greater one to bear. Surajah and I have rescued my father, and he'll be here in a few minutes. I congratulate you, the Rajah said warmly. That is news indeed, news that I for one never expected to hear. It is simply marvellous, Dick. However, I am sure that your mother is not fit to bear it at present. I will go up now and tell Gola to break your return gradually to her. I will say nothing about your father to your aunt. As soon as the news that you are here is broken, you must go to your mother. Tell her as little as possible. Pretend that you are hungry and have a meal sent up, and persuade her to take some nourishment. Then declare positively that you won't tell her anything about your adventures until she has had a long sleep. Gola will prepare a sleeping draught for her. In the meantime, I will ride off directly I have seen my wife to meet Surajah and your father, and bring him on here. I shan't tell anyone who he is, in case a chance word should come to your mother's ears. If she wakes up again this evening and asks for you, you must judge for yourself whether to tell her anything, or to wait until morning. You might perhaps, if she seems calm, gladden her with the news that, from what you have heard, you have very strong hopes that a prisoner in keeping at one of the hill forts, is your father. Then to-morrow morning you can tell her the whole truth. Now I will run up to Gola. There is no time to be lost. I shall be in the dining-room, uncle, when I am wanted. A few minutes later Gola came in hastily. 
"'Your mother has fainted, Dick. I broke the news to her very gently, but it was too much for her in her weak state. When she comes round again and is able to talk, I will fetch you. In the meantime, I'll send Annie in to you.' Two minutes later the girl ran in with a flushed face, threw herself into Dick's arms, and kissed him. "'I can't help it, Dick,' she said. "'So it is of no use your scolding me. This is a surprise. Who would have thought of your coming back so soon? But it is lucky you did. Your mother has been in a sad way and she was so sure that you had been in some terrible danger that I have been almost as anxious as she was. And now it seems that I need not have been frightened at all. I was in great danger, Annie. Just at the time my mother dreamt about me, Surajah, Ibrahim, and I were attacked by a party of stranglers disguised as merchants, and if it had not been that I had some strange suspicion of them, we should all have been murdered. As it was, we shot the whole gang, who, fortunately for us, had no firearms. "'It must have been your mother who warned you,' Annie said gravely. "'She told us that she dreamt you were in some terrible danger, though she could not remember what it was, and she tried with all her might to warn you. "'Perhaps it was that, Annie. I don't know why I suspected them so strongly. Surajah quite laughed at the idea. Anyway, it saved our lives.' "'And how are you getting on, Annie? Are you happy?' "'Oh, so happy!' she exclaimed. "'At least I was until your mother got ill, and I was working very hard at my lessons.' but of course that has all been stopped as far as taking them for her is concerned. I've gone on working, and the Rajah's sons have been very good, and helped me sometimes, and I begin to read words of two letters. And what has brought you back so soon? That I can't tell you yet, Annie. I will only tell you that it is not bad news, and no one but my uncle will know more than that till I have told my mother. Even my aunt won't hear it. Has Surajah come back too, Dick? Yes. I heard horses in the courtyard just now, and I have no doubt it was him. I rode on first, being anxious to see my mother. They chatted for a few minutes. Then the Rajah came to the door and called Dick into the next room. I have settled your father in the room at the other end of the gallery, Dick. He agreed with me that it was better for him to keep there by himself until you have told your mother that he is here. I have just ordered a meal to be sent, and after that will send my barber in to shave him. He says your mother will never recognize him with all that hair on his face. I'm going to see if something cannot be done to take the stain off his face, and shall then set a half a dozen tailors to work on some dark blue cloth to turn him out a suit before tomorrow morning, in what he calls sailor fashion, so that he may appear before your mother in something like the style in which she remembers him. A few minutes later Gulla came in and said that Mrs. Holland was ready for Dick to go into her. Dick found his mother looking pale and weak, but the joy of his coming had already brightened her eyes, and given a faint flush to her cheeks. "'I have been so dreadfully anxious, Dick,' she said after the first embrace. "'I was certain you had been in some terrible danger.' "'I have been, but thank God I escaped, owing, I think, to the warning Annie says you tried to give me. But we must not talk about that now. I'll tell you all the story to-morrow. You are really not fit to talk. You must take some broth and some wine and a sleeping draught and I hope you will go off and not waken up till tomorrow morning. Now you do as I tell you. While you're drinking your broth, I will go in and take something to eat, for I've had nothing today, and I'm as hungry as a hunter. Then I will come back and sit by you till you go off to sleep. He was not long away, but he was met at the door by his aunt, who said, She's gone off already, Dick. I have no doubt that she will sleep many hours, but if she wakes, I will let you know at once. If that is the case, Gola, the Raja, who had come in at the same moment, said, I can let you into a secret which no one but myself knows yet, but which, now that Margaret is asleep, can be told. 
Gola was very pleased when she heard the news, and Dick went off at once to his father. It was a great relief to the latter to know that his wife had gone off to sleep, and would probably be well enough to have the news broken to her in the morning. "'I hear that you are preparing for the meeting, father, by getting yourself shaved and having a blue cloth suit made?' "'Yes, Dick, I should like to be as much like my old self as possible. "'I don't think Mother will care much what you look like, father. "'Still, it's very natural that you should want to get rid of all that hair. "'What bothers me, lad,' Captain Holland went on, putting his hand to the back of his neck, "'is this shaved spot here. "'Of course, with the turban on and the native rig it was all right, "'but it will take a rum affair in English clothes.' "'Dick could not help laughing at his father's look of perplexity. "'Well, father, it's just the same with myself. "'I have not changed yet, but when I do, "'the hair above, which is now tucked up under the turban, "'will be quite long enough to come down to the nape of the neck "'and hide that bare place till the hair grows again. "'Yes, I did not think of that. "'My hair is long enough to come down over my shoulders. "'I was going to tell the barber to cut it short all over, "'but I will see now that he allows for that. "'Now, father, do you mind my bringing in Annie Mansfield? "'I know she'll be wanting to keep close to me all day.' and I should never be able to get rid of her without telling her about you. Bring her in by all means, Dick. She must be a plucky young girl by what you said about her. Where have you been, Dick? Annie inquired when Dick went out a few minutes later. I've been looking for you everywhere. Nobody had seen you unless it was the Rajah. I asked him, and he said that little girls must not ask questions, and then laughed. You have not brought home another white girl, she exclaimed suddenly. Oh, would it not be very nice for you to have a companion, Annie? No, she said sharply. I should not like it at all. Well, I will take you in to see her, and I think you will like her. No, I am only joking, he broke off as he saw tears start into her eyes. It's not another girl. But you shall see for yourself. He took her hand and led her to his father's room. There, Annie. This is the gentleman who has come back with me this time. Annie looked at Captain Holland in surprise, and then turned her eyes to Dick for an explanation. "'He is a respectable-looking old native, isn't he, Annie?' "'Yes, he looks respectable,' Annie said gravely. "'But he doesn't look very old.' "'Why has he come down with you, Dick? He can't have been a slave.' "'But I have, lass,' the captain said in English, to Annie's intense astonishment. "'I have been in their hands a year or so longer than you were.' Annie turned impulsively to Dick and grasped his arm. "'Oh, oh, Dick!' she said in an excited whisper. "'Is it, is it your father, after all?' "'Aye, lass,' the captain answered for him. "'I am the boy's father, and a happy father, too, as you may guess at finding I have such a son. And I hear he has been a good friend to you, too.' "'Oh, he has, he has indeed,' Annie cried, running forward and seizing his hands in both of hers. "'I don't think there ever was anyone so kind and good.' "'What bosh, Annie!' Dick exclaimed almost crossly. "'Never mind what he says, my dear. You and I know all about it. Now we can do very well without him for a time. He can go and tell his uncle and cousins all about his adventures, which I have no doubt they are dying to hear, and you and I can sit here and exchange confidences until my barber comes. I don't look much like an Englishman now, but I hope that they will be able to get me something that will take this stain off my face.' Mrs. Holland did not wake till evening. She seemed very much better, and had a short chat with Dick. She would have got up had he not told her that he should be going to bed himself in a short time, and that all his story would keep very well until the morning, when he hoped to find her quite herself again. By dint of the application of various unguents and a vast amount of hard scrubbing, Captain Holland restored his face to its original hue. 
"'I look a bit sunburnt,' he said, "'but I have often come back browner than this from some of my voyages.' "'You look quite like yourself in your portrait at home, father,' Dick said. "'It's the shaving and cutting your hair, even more than getting off the dye, that has made the difference. I don't think you look much older than you did then, except that there are a few grey hairs.' "'I shall look better tomorrow, Dick, when I get these outlandish things off. I have been trying on my new suit, and I think it will do, first-rate. Those clothes that you wore on board ship and handed to them as a model gave them the idea of what I wanted.' And indeed, the next morning, when Captain Holland appeared in his new suit, Dick declared that he looked just as if he had walked down from his picture. The Rani had agreed to break the news to Mrs. Holland as soon as she was dressed. She came into the room where the others were waiting for breakfast, and said to Captain Holland, "'Come. She knows all, and has borne it well.' She led him to the door of Mrs. Holland's room and opened it. As he entered, there was a cry of, "'Oh, Jack! My Jack!' Then she closed the door behind him and left husband and wife together. A few days afterwards there was a family consultation. Now, Dick, his father said, we must settle about your plans. You know we have decided upon going home by the next ship and taking Annie with us, without waiting for her father's letter. Of course I shall have no difficulty in finding out when I get there what his address is. I have promised your mother to give up the sea and settle down again at Shadwell, where I can meet old friends and shall feel at home. We've had a long talk about what you said the other night, about your insisting that we should take the money those jewels of yours fetch. Well, we won't do that. Then I shall sell them, father, Dick said positively, and give the money to a hospital. I've not finished yet, Dick. We won't take all the money, but we have agreed that we will take a quarter of it. Of course, we could manage on my savings, as your mother did when I was away. We shall lose the little allowance the company made her, but I shall buy a share in a ship with my money which will bring in a good deal better rate of interest than she got for it in the funds, so we could still manage very well. Still, as we feel that it would please you, we agree to take a quarter of the money the jewels fetch, and that with what I have will give us an income well beyond our wants. So that is settled. Now, about yourself. I really don't think that you can do better than what you proposed when we were talking of it yesterday. You'd be like a fish out of water in England, if you had nothing to occupy your time, and therefore can't be better than enter the service here, and remain, at any rate, for a few years. As your commission was dated from the time you joined Lord Cornwallis, two and a half years ago, you won't be at the bottom of the tree, and while you are serving you'll want no money here, and the interest of your capital will be accumulating. If I invest it in shipping for you, you'll get eight or ten percent for it, and as I shall pick good ships, commanded by men I know, and will divide the money up in small shares, among half a dozen of them, there will be practically no risk, and of course the vessels will be insured, so that at the end of ten years, by reinvesting the profits, your money will be more than doubled, and you will have a nice fortune when you choose to come home, even if the jewels do not fetch anything like what you expect. A week later the party journeyed down to Madras, where they stayed for a fortnight. Dick, on his arrival, called upon the governor, who congratulated him most heartily when he heard that he had succeeded in finding and releasing his father and at once appointed him to one of the native cavalry regiments, and his parents had the satisfaction of seeing him in uniform before they started. Annie showed but little interest in the thought of going to England and being restored to her parents, being at the time too much distressed at parting from Dick to give any thought to other matters. But at last the good-byes were all said, and as the anchor was weighed, Dick returned on shore in a surf-boat, and next day joined his regiment. 
Surajah had wanted to accompany him to Madras and to enlist in any regiment to which he might be appointed, and the assurance that it might be a long time before he became a native officer, as these were always chosen from the ranks except in the case of rising new regiments, had little influence with him. The Rajah, however, had finally persuaded him to stay, by the argument that his father, who was now getting on in years, would sorely miss him, that the captain of the troop would also be retiring shortly, and that he should, as a reward for his faithful service to his nephew, appoint him to the command as soon as it was vacant. Ibrahim entered the Rajah's service, preferring that to soldiering. End of chapter 20 The Escape Recording by Mike Harris